perhaps one of the more misused and misunderstood terms that we can find in theology today is this concept which is most popularly used in the Reformed tradition. Yet, though it tends to be used mostly by those who come from Reformed churches, it's one which can and should be applied to all Christian churches, to all Christian traditions. This is the concept of Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda Secundum Verbe Di, or the church reformed must always be reforming according to the word of God. Oftentimes shortened to simply Semper Reformanda, or always reforming. Drawn from Augustinian theology and popularized by Karl Barth, it's a concept which is meant to signify something significant in the life of the church. Yet, oftentimes it's used in a manner that does not befit its actual meaning and purpose. The cause of reformation, of always reforming, is espoused in some form or another. But in the end, what is advocated for does not actually fit within the actual concept of Semper Reformata. This leads to the important question then of what is actually meant by this expression? What is its actual purpose? And of course, what does this mean for the church and for the believer? That's what we'll be discussing this week as we continue our exploration of theological phrases and expressions that every Christian should know and understand. I'm Wyatt McIntyre, and this is our Timeless Faith. When Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the Castle Church door in Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517, he never had any intention of creating a revolution within the church, let alone a revolution that would split it apart. Rather, it was a desire to engage in an academic debate over certain abuses which he had witnessed within the church that drove him to do what he did. The truth was that even as Luther came to the inevitable conclusion that the church needed to be reformed, that it had adopted certain teachings and practices that were not only out of sync with the Bible, but also ran contrary to them. He wasn't the first. Even looking beyond Jan Hus, who had been executed by the church a hundred years prior, and the others who came before him and after him, there were those who held to this firm belief, 
who would still be considered loyal sons of the Roman Church. A contemporary of Luther, known for his debates with the younger German professor Erasmus of Rotterdam, a brilliant theologian and philosopher, he was committed to reforming the Roman Catholic Church from within. Regardless, Luther's actions that All Saints' Eve would set into motion a course of events that would make the Reformation ultimately unavoidable. Yet what Luther and the other reformers who would come after him were advocating for, what they were fighting for, they weren't new or shocking concepts. Nor were they doctrines which were unobserved by the church before. They weren't looking at the present age, somehow believing that the church, it had failed to live up to the time. It was just, it was becoming irrelevant to the masses and something, anything needed to be done to bring it more in line with the world as... It was seen in that day. Rather, what they wanted was to go back to the sources. They wanted to get back to the basics of the church. What they desired more than anything else was a return to the biblical foundations of the church. To those teachings that were based on a clear scriptural framework. What they wanted was an abandonment of those traditions that ran contrary to God's word and the abuses that they birthed. Above all else, their intention was to reject the modern innovations of the church, to reject the modern inclinations of the church, and reclaim something that had been otherwise lost throughout the generation, to reclaim a purity. They were turning their backs on what the church had become and their desire for true worship. The recognition here was that true worship of God, it fosters true faith. And as such, it requires obedience to God as it is taught by Christ and through the Holy Spirit, according to the scriptures. Yet what needs to be considered here was that Reformation, Reformation was never considered to be a one-time act. It was never thought to be just a one-and-done sort of thing. And the church? The church was never intended to become some form of a static body once the Reformation happened and reached its inevitable conclusion. Rather, Reformation was intended to be a perpetual process 
by which the church self-reflected and examined its teachings and practices, its traditions and its application to ensure their purity, to ensure that they were in line with the word of God. This need for perpetual reformation would be apparent not simply in the generations that preceded the Reformation, but also in the generations that would follow. Zeal for reform would turn into what could only be considered dead orthodoxy. Theological liberalism would rise. Emotionalism would grip the church. In each generation, there would be new adversities that would arise, bringing with them threats that would challenge the church. Thus, Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda Secundum Verbe Di. The church reformed must always be reforming according to the word of God. As I stated earlier, this concept, this idea, Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda Secundum Verbe Diem, it's an expression which we tend to find most commonly in the Reformed churches, within that Reformed tradition. The term itself can easily be traced to the Netherlands in the 17th century and Dutch theologian Jodokus van Lodenstein, who did not necessarily mean the expression for the church as a whole, but rather for the Reformed Church. And yet still, still it is an expression which is relevant for the church as a whole. And the concept that lies behind it, it's not one that originated in the 17th century. It's, in fact, one that can be traced back to an Augustinian understanding of the church. You see, Augustine of Hippo, he understood that the church on earth, it was something more than just simply a human institution. The body of Christ, the bride of Christ, it is given life by the outpouring of the Spirit at the Pentecost. It's the Spirit then that guides, guards, and protects it as it gathers together the believers in communion and community with one another. But because of this human component, what is witnessed is that the church is a union. It's a union between the divine and the human. It involves a form of partnership between the divine and humanity. Because of this fact, it's what Augustine would call a corpus per mixtum, or a mixed body. One which reflects the grace of God, but that also 
has the believer's goodness as well as their sinfulness because of that human component that is within it. This, this leads to the realization that it can be prone to abuses. It can be given over to corruption because it exists on this side of heaven. As John Calvin would express, the heart of man is a perpetual factory for idols. This means that there will be human frailties that are adopted within the church. Human weaknesses which ultimately become unavoidable. In this sense, the body of believers must be prepared for honest conversations to take place. The body of believers must be prepared for hard truths to be spoken, recognizing that there are places where they have fallen short, where they have failed to live up to the biblical mandate, where they have not upheld scriptural truth, where they have stumbled or perhaps faltered in their steps. It must be prepared to do so, recognizing that the human element of the church is fallible and prone to make mistakes, prone to make errors that it must repent of and must make corrections for. This calls the body of believers to a deep and abiding sense of humility, which allows for the process of reforming to begin, a process which focuses the church's attention once more towards true scriptural doctrine, true biblical teaching, and Christ-centered application. Remembering, as Paul writes, that they are no longer strangers and aliens, but rather fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Because they are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. As such, perpetual reformation becomes an absolute necessity which is unavoidable. Ultimately, though, what we have to come to recognize is that just as the church doesn't give birth to itself, just as the church does not create itself, neither does it reform itself. As Van Lodenstein expresses in his contemplations on Zion, the church desires not to be called reformata 
or reformed, but reformanda, or being reformed. What a pure church it would become, which always was thus occupied. This then brings up a very important point, and that is the way that we translate the Latin in Ecclesia Reformata, Semper Reformanda, Secundum, Verbe Dia, is incredibly important. Reformanda here is what would be considered future passive. What this reflects is that though the church is being reformed, it is not the one that is doing the reforming. Rather, the implication is that the church is the object. And when we consider that in the passive, what we come to recognize is that the reforming is being done to it. To this end, Though we may desire reformation, the actual act of reforming, it is not reliant on us. Just as the believer doesn't give birth to the church, just as the believer does not create the church, neither does the believer do the ultimate act of reforming. Rather, it is a work of the Holy Spirit who reforms through us, making the church a recipient of God's grace through the third person of the Trinity. What this reminds us then is that Semper Reformanda is not given over to culture. It's not about changing the church because of cultural pressures or because of societal changes. It is not about changing the church because of the dominant assumptions of the age. Nor does it at any point anywhere claim that because something's newer, it must be better. Just because something is generally accepted by the masses, generally accepted and taught by society, does not make it better. What we then realize is that it's not about making the church more relatable or relevant to the current generation in the hopes of becoming more societally and socially acceptable. It isn't about our experiences or our emotional response to any given thing. On the other hand, it's also not given over to empty tradition. It's not about adhering to tradition simply because that's how it's always been done. It's not about just following hollow ritual without ever questioning it. This concept, it does not allow for teachings or doctrines to exist without a proper biblical basis or foundation because this is what we've always taught or been taught.
It doesn't simply employ formalism for the sake of formalism or legalism for the sake of good order. It recognizes that the norma normata, the normed norms of the church, they're not somehow sacred or elevated to the same level of scriptures as special revelation, making them somehow, some way, untouchable. Rather, it is given over to obedience to God and to his word, recognizing that the scriptures alone are the norma normans non normata of the church, the norming norm which is not normed. And in that, they are the norma absoluta, the absolute norm. Everything else, tradition, confession, ritual, they are of secondary importance intended to flow from the word of God and to be subject to his gift of grace. Because of this, this concept it is intrinsically tied to the concept of sola scriptura, and it requires of us, of the church, complete surrender to the scriptures. Not partial surrender, not surrender on our term, not surrender but only if we are able to hold on to this or that. Total and complete surrender as God does his work. To this end, semper reformanda occurs in every aspect of the life and the practice of the church and the hearts of the believers. As such, what we come to recognize is that the church the church is never intended to be a static body. It's never intended to simply be standing still. Because when it is standing still, when it is static, it stagnates. It stagnates, and as it stagnates, undesirable things grow within it. Rather, what we have to recognize is that the church lives, and in living, it needs to be perpetually reformed through the word of God so that it is refocused, its attention once more where it needs to be. It is, after all, this reforming that brings about a true and sincere transformation within it. What all of this reminds us of is the fact that the church, the church is not a product of the age that it exists in, nor is it even a product of this world. As such, it should never be prone to, to the flights of fancy 
that we see in this world. It exists not within subjective reasoning or experiential truth of the individual, but rather it exists within the foundational, objective truth of God. As the old hymn proclaims, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. Through the word we learn of Christ. As such, the church must be constantly reorientated towards Christ through the scriptures. And in being reorientated as such, the church must then give itself over in complete obedience to the word and to God, regardless of the cost that it may bring. This means that we may have to let go of some of the traditions that we cling to or to some of the teachings that we've learned. It may mean that we have to admit that we have a limited understanding of concepts or ideas that we once thought that we had a very firm grasp of. It means that There are going to be times when we have to say we don't completely get it. It certainly means that we have to let go of our desire to be accepted by culture and the world around us. It certainly means that we have to be willing to take this world's scorn and criticism when it is heaped upon us for standing up. For biblical truth, for scriptural truth, regardless of how hard or difficult it may be. As it was with Luther, the church must be bound by the scriptures and its conscience held captive to the word of God, willing to stand firm in that ancient apostolic faith. But then, that's all I really have time to say here today. I want to thank you for taking the time to join with me and remind you that you can find me on the web and you can find Our Timeless Faith on the web at ourtimelessfaith.com. There I am releasing new articles hopefully every week this past week i released the first article in a series that i am doing on pride so i hope that you check that out i also can be found on youtube i just released the first video for our timeless faith so go to youtube and look up wyatt mcintyre youtube.com backslash wyatt mcintyre You can also find me on Twitter at Wyatt McIntyre, on Instagram at Our Timeless Faith, and Facebook at Facebook.com backslash Wyatt McIntyre. So please take the opportunity to connect with me on all of those various different mediums. I look forward to hearing from you.
Also, if you want to support this project, you can do so by going to patreon.com backslash our timeless faith and choose to be a donor. There I release some of the resources that I use to put together this podcast as well as the articles that I put out. So hopefully that will help to advance your reading list a little bit. So please take the opportunity to check that out. But until we have the chance to meet again next time, may the peace of the Lord, that transcending, encompassing peace, that peace that surpasses all human understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, even unto life everlasting. Amen.